This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Adam Brooks, a former BBC foreign correspondent who reported over many years from China, Indonesia, and the United States. And he'll be talking about his new book, Fragile Cargo, China's wartime race to save the treasures of the Forbidden City, which was published this year, 2022, by Chato and Windus. At the geometrical center of China's capital city, Beijing, is a museum, the Palace Museum, housed in the sprawling, golden-eaved imperial complex, sometimes known as the Forbidden City. Dramatic enough on their own, these roofs shelter a staggeringly huge collection of art and artifacts collected over hundreds of years by the multi-ethnic emperors who lived in the palace. The collection has justifiably amazed millions of both Chinese and non-Chinese people who visited the complex in recent decades, possibly not so long ago, with the aid of a Roger Moore voice uh, audio recording for Anglophones. But equally amazing is the fact that these paintings, vases, scrolls and carvings, or most of them at least, are still in there at all, given the tides of imperial collapse, civil war and foreign invasion which rocked East Asia in the 20th century. Adam Brooks' new book tells the story of the survival of these treasures, as the title aptly puts it, in the face of tumultuous events unfolding in China from the 1920s to the 1950s. The evacuation of thousands and thousands of cases of mostly very fragile objects from Beijing and their meandering journey to safety deep in Western China is an amazing tale of the efforts of brave and studious curators who ensured that their cargo was protected from, as the book puts it, bombing, plunder by Japanese troops or by bandits, weather, damp, pests, poor roads, turbulent rivers, rotted joists, and accidents of all kinds. But this is also, in Brooks's beautiful telling, an object-mediated story of the end of the Qing, of the lightning expansion of the Japanese Empire, of the lingering presence of British, American, and French gunboat empires in China, and of nationalist and later communist parties seeking to define the country's future. On their improbable journey, the palace treasures seem to visit almost every major and many non-major locations in China, and ultimately also Taiwan, lending the narrative a balance between the grand scale of continental cataclysm and the intimate world of the ink painter or carver. But to help us navigate then between these scales and many other stories besides, we have Adam Brooks here, so I'll say welcome, Adam, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great to have the chance to speak to someone on a compelling topic that I, I think uh, manages, as I say, to take in so much. Um, but perhaps I'll begin by asking you a bit about how you uh, got interested 
maybe not only in this uh, specific episode or series of episodes of history, but in China generally, in, in East Asia and the like. I started out paying attention to China or trying to uh, way back as an undergraduate. I studied Chinese at SOAS in the 1980s. I went on to get uh, uh, jobs in journalism, I think, kind of based on the fact that I was a Chinese speaker and and I was one of the kind of few reporters in the in the pool who who would be able to function in China in a in a meaningful way. Uh, I worked for the BBC for a long time for BBC News, and for them I was a, a foreign correspondent. And I spent, gosh, what eight years in China for the BBC on and off, uh, and. Um, uh, while I would never want to uh, portray myself as any kind of China expert or China scholar, I, I, I seem to have spent a lot of my career l- looking Chinawards. Um, when I kind of quit full-time journalism, I uh, wrote commercial fiction for a time. But then we encountered, my wife and I encountered this story uh, we heard it in Taiwan of the evacuation of the imperial art collections uh, from the Forbidden City in the 1930s and this incredible journey they made around China. And we were not very familiar with it. We hadn't heard it before. And that surprised both of us because we're both quite familiar with 20th century Chinese history. Um, and when we looked around in the English language sources, we couldn't find a full account of that story. And equally, as I dug into a little, uh, dug into it a little bit, I found that quite a lot of primary source material was appearing in China over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, so I, it just seemed to me that the time was right to take a shot at, at writing a full-length narrative account of of, of the story. Um, I wouldn't want to say it's the history of the story. I'd say it's a history of the story. It's a it's a narrative telling of it. Mm. Yeah, well, as I say, it takes in so many different aspects and uses, I think, this sort of single strand to draw in a great, um, you know, kind of um, gallery of, of different uh, aspects of that fascinating period of, uh, of the country's past. So um, that's something that's yeah very compelling about the book. Um, I just wonder, though, given that you spent this long period, you know, reporting as a, as a, as a journalist, presumably largely on uh, current affairs at the time, um, did sort of history and uh, an interest in uh, you know the the past, whether distant or near, feature much in your in your journalistic time. Did you have the space to kind of explore an interest in this alongside your reporting work? Uh, I mean, you know, it, uh, one tries, I guess. I, I don't think I was ever particularly efficient or effective at doing that. But you know, when you're wandering around Beijing uh, year after year, and when you're trying to I guess, represent the Chinese Communist Party to depict it uh, for audiences in, in Europe and the United States. You know, you have to try and contextualize it. We, we in the Anglophone world are very, I think, our understanding of China remains pretty impoverished. Uh, I don't think we're very China competent at all. I don't think our publics have a great sense of what this country is or where it comes from. So that act of contextualizing, of just trying to invite your listener or your reader to um, 
to to approach the question of what is this thing we call China? And when we talk about China, what are we talking about? I think that is part of the journalistic function. We do try to do that. But it's obviously much easier and much more efficient uh, efficient to do it in the sort of longer form textual writing. Yeah. Mm, great. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's all that's all spot on. Um, and as far as, you know, the sort of uh, trajectory of things from that point at which you know you uh, alighted on this this story, as you say, or that that kind of uh, you know um, tale of of these objects journey through uh, through China, which we'll get onto in a second. Um, how did the actual book project then take shape in terms of the research, in terms of the uh, kind of uh, scene setting, and, and the way that you kind of frame the actual writing project? Um, it took shape via years of me floundering around trying to work through the source material. Um, I hired a researcher in China to try and um, uh, sift out the good source material from from the rubbish. And this story, the story of the imperial collections and the history of the Forbidden City in China, has become rather kind of mythologized. You know, it's become rather mystified. It has a kind of mythic status as the founding story of the of the Palace Museum, perhaps one of you know the, one of the greatest cultural institutions in China. And and to try and get away from that and to demystify the story and find out what actually happened rather than what happens in the later heroic tellings of the story was difficult. And there's a lot of really awful material flying around. So I hired a researcher to to go through everything, basically, and then push in my direction what he thought uh, was was the most reliable source material. So that kind of was useful. Um, I set about reading, which I do slowly in Chinese. Uh, the more difficult stuff I got helped with professional translators. And then I tried to talk to the two palace museums, the one in Beijing and the one in Taipei. Um, the one in Beijing was not desperately willing to talk to some random ex-journalist in the United States who wanted to write, who wanted to write a version of their most treasured story. Um, but the Palace Museum Taipei was very open and incredibly helpful, and uh, they were very enthusiastic. So I was able to go to Taipei, meet curators at the museum, meet their archive people, and I was introduced to surviving eyewitnesses who remember the Second World War in China and remember this story, and I was able to interview them. So. So that was the, the the kind of research basis of the thing, and I, I then tried to craft it into a into a narrative. Great, yeah. Well, I was going to ask about that actually. The uh, involvement of each of the two, uh, Gu Gong, right, the, the two palace museums uh, in in Beijing and, and Taipei, and noticed from the acknowledgements that uh, there's a, a more of a, a Taiwan focus. It's probably not too much of a spoiler alert to, uh, uh, or uh, not too much of an alert is needed to mention that the the, the collection is uh, is in both those places uh, in some proportion. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, it's, uh, it really tells that you had this kind of humane uh, and human contacts with uh, that story, in addition to just the uh, the objects themselves, which uh, have their own their own lives. Um, but that's great. Um, we'll jump in then, perhaps, to the uh, kind of beginning of the book, in which you offer a, a sort of prelude, a sort of uh, deeper time historical uh, preface, if you like, uh, to uh, uh, the existence of this collection. The Emperor Qianlong in uh, 1765, uh, sitting in this hall with uh, all of these uh, many treasures around. Um, but perhaps on the most basic level, could you just give us a, 
uh, overview of what the treasures were, uh, why were they so important? You know, you mentioned the mythologies that have perhaps emerged very recently, but you know, what? Uh, yeah, what are we? What are we actually talking about here? These treasures. Well, what we're talking about is a vast uh, uh, amalgam of objects and texts that that resided in the palaces and storehouses of the Forbidden City and the roles that they played there, as I understand them. And the, and the scholarship here, I think, is still trying to figure out what what these things were and what their function was. Um, but as my, my understanding is that they played a variety of roles. Some of them were... Um, aesthetic and decorative. Others were representative. A lot of the roles of these objects were rituals. So for example, much of the porcelain would have been used in rituals. Um, Many of the objects had sort of metaphysical significance, ancient bronzes carrying inscriptions from from the Zhou period and deep antiquity. Um, You had musical instruments, you had sets of bells, you know, you had a big collection of clocks that were that were imported and brought into the into the the palace. so uh, overall, these collections, I've, I've, in the book, I use the term collections, plural, to try and introduce the idea that this wasn't a single collection assembled in the way that a European collector might collect. This is a rather different thing. Um, and, and it was deeply tied into the role of the emperor as the center of the universe. It was, it was evidence of the emperor's uh, mystique. Uh, and centrality. Um, and crucially, what's very important is, is that these collections were hidden. They were a private sort of hoard, if you like. I do use that word in the book too, a private hoard of, the, of emperors. Um, and they were not to be seen by, uh, by ordinary people. And much of it actually remained in storage. It wasn't on display in the Forbidden City. It was stored away. Um, so it was everything from paintings to encyclopedias to the, the Qing uh, uh, archive, you know, the history of the Qing emperors, to carvings in jade, to jewellery, to cloisonne, to thrones, to swords, to portraiture, to genealogy, you name it. Um, when they catalogued it in 1924... They found 1.17 million objects to catalogue in a catalogue of 28 volumes, which gives you an idea of the scale. No, that's quite a, quite amazing, but I think uh, very revealing and, and appropriate that you identify it as 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 collections or as a sort of um, you know uh, group of, of, of things, a very large group or multiple groups uh, that. Uh, didn't attain this kind of single coherence perhaps until more recently. Um, I believe you call it a, a journey of meaning uh, or a journey in meaning, I should say, that the objects undergo, interpreted in certain ways at, at different times. And it's that that sheds light, I think, uh, so richly on these these different um, historical uh, periods and, and how things uh, how things were unfolding around them. Um, so, yeah, you've, you've kind of brought us up to that uh, that period in, in the early to mid-1920s. Um, there's a lot of kind of, you know, historical context to fill in between that Chen, uh, that and, uh, and Qianlong and the end of the, uh, the Qing Empire and so on. But into the 20th century, uh, this, this uh, collection or collections are undergoing or are embarking on uh, a, a very significant journey of meanings after the imperial collapse and into the um, kind of foundation of the Republic of China in 1912. Um, so could you say something about where we find these objects at that point? What what sort of state are they in? Uh, and, and how uh, is a project launched to exactly, as you say, uh, catalogue them um, and kind of 
bring some coherence to this vast, sprawling group of things. So after the collapse of the Qing, you know, Pu Yi, the last emperor, remains in the Forbidden City with his sort of shrunken retinue of people. Uh, the palaces themselves are falling apart. Uh, weeds are going up in the courtyards. There's piles of ash and cinders. The trees are falling down. You know, the place is in terrible shape. Uh, in 1924, Pu Yi is kicked out of the Forbidden City by uh, the warlord Feng Yuxiang. And um, Feng Yuxiang's new government, the Beiyang government in, in, uh, in Peking, uh, decides that it needs to take possession of all the, imp- the old imperial possessions. So it sets up a committee, called the, which is usually translated as the Committee for the Disposition of the Qing Household. Uh, and this committee decides that it must catalogue everything that is inside the the imperial precincts in the Forbidden City. So they set up inventory teams, mostly made up of scholars and students from Peking University. And in December 1924, in the sort of depths of a dark winter, uh, Peking winter, these inventory teams, all bundled up in, in scarves and gloves and padded jackets, make their way into the empty, silent Forbidden City, and they start cataloging object by object by object. And they are the first people to see these collections in the round, to look at them holistically, and to actually get a sense of what's here. Much of what they see, they have never, no one has ever seen before or hasn't seen in centuries. Um, they s- begin to understand the sort of hugeness, the colossal nature of what's in there. Um, and they assemble this huge catalog. Uh, in just one year, it's decided that the Forbidden City will become a museum. And uh, a year after the inventory begins, uh, the Palace Museum is founded on National Day 1925, October 10th, and throws open its doors to the public. Uh, So it was an incredibly quick transition from this imperial horde to a national museum with objects now open up to public view and symbolizing something totally new and different and performing a completely different role in Chinese public life. Yeah, the speed of that is really it is really astonishing and I guess reveals the extent to which uh, so many of the ideas that ended up feeding into uh, how the Republic kind of came together or at least how some kind of post-Qing or post-imperial era came together were brewing perhaps for longer than the, than than you know their sort of actual enactment would suggest that, that these kind of ideas that you need to have a, a museum of, of the kind of national uh, treasures and so on um, presumably was around I guess in the minds of um, some of these influential figures before that um, but onto the the figures themselves and as we move kind of uh, into the into the body of the book um, we we hear of a couple of important uh, characters who remain important throughout the entire book, um, Zhuang Yan and uh, Na Zhiliang, uh, two uh, kind of slightly more junior, perhaps, uh, curators, each richly fleshed out with their own characters. But um, perhaps the most sort of enduring, significant, and again, spoiler alert, but uh, I suppose ultimately tragic figure uh, in the book is uh, a scholar, uh, Ma Hung. Uh, so could you say something about uh, him, a, a, a person you term the, the shabby professor in chapter two, um, who was Ma Hung and, and what was his sort of involvement in this project? So Ma Hung was born in 1881. Uh, his father was a Qing magistrate. He grew up uh, uh, just outside Shanghai. 
he married he, he, from from youth. He was a very precocious kid. He was deeply interested in traditional Chinese scholarship, you know, in the antiquarian tradition. Uh, he, which means that he was looking at ancient inscriptions. He was cutting seals. He was looking at objects. He was looking at bronzes. He was reading poetry. All that sort of stuff that the traditional Chinese scholar, the antiquarian scholar, did. Um, he. Uh, didn't have much formal higher education. He was privately tutored as a boy. He married into a terribly wealthy family in Shanghai. Uh, and for 15 years, he worked as a businessman in the family businesses in Shanghai, which ran from hardware stores to match factories to silk factories. And he lived this gilded life in the, in the concessions in Shanghai. But he always yearned to be a true scholar. And in 1917, uh, Peking University was undergoing this massive expansion under Tsai Yuen-pei. Lots was happening there. And Ma Hung saw his moment and he left behind his gilded wealthy life in Shanghai and he moved to Peking. And he took a job in Peking University, uh, initially working on archival stuff and also teaching equestrianism. He was quite the horseman. So he was teaching Peking University students how to ride to start with. But then you know word of his of his um scholarship became uh, widespread and he was offered jobs as a as a teacher of epigraphy philology and history he helped establish the institute of archaeology inside peking university in 1922 he was instrumental in trying to lay the ground for modern archaeological uh, practice in China. He was part of that whole movement. Throughout the 1920s, he uh, was very involved in the larger archaeological projects across China uh, and was advocating for legislation to make sure that archaeology became part of a, a state-administered project and, and that China's archaeological patrimony was the patrimony of the state. Uh, so he was very much a modernizer from that point of view, as well as being a traditionalist. Um, he was on the inventory teams in 1924 in the Forbidden City. And by the end of the 20s, he occupies a senior position in the Palace Museum. In 1934, he's director of the Palace Museum. And he's the guy who oversees and manages and runs the entire enterprise, the packing of the collections in 1933, and then this extraordinary journey that they go on uh, for the next 16 years. So he's the central figure. He never wrote a, much of a memoir, so we don't really see a lot of his own words. We only really see him from the outside, and he remains a little bit of a mystery and a bit of an enigma. Uh, but... He's well portrayed in other memoirs, and we have a strong sense of, of his character and who he was, yeah. Right, yeah, you mentioned at one point that uh, actually uh, one th the kind of a lot of his life was covered mainly or reflected mainly in poetry, right, which he, which he did write uh, throughout certain periods of his life, and it's only sort of refracted experience in poetry that we get a sense of his first-hand voice, at least up until quite close to the end. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, an intriguing figure. Um, and as you've now mentioned, yes, what the person who oversees this entire endeavor to uh, evacuate the, uh, the the entire collection only uh, what seven or eight years after the Palace Museum has opened in the first place. So, um, could you say something about the kind of background of that decision? What it what what, what it was that ultimately uh, caused the, the the kind of choice to leave uh, Beijing um, and 
well, also maybe some some numbers about how much stuff <laughs> actually ended up getting moved. Yeah. So um, this was actually one of the uh, biggest challenges in the book was was trying to pin down exactly how that decision was made. And I never really succeeded in figuring out who or when it was decided that these artifacts would be would be evacuated from Peking. Um, you know, uh, by the late 1920s, the Palace Museum is coming as close as it ever does to flourishing. It's doing okay. But in 1931, Japan occupies Manchuria. 1932, you have the fight, a huge outbreak of fighting between Japanese and Chinese forces in Shanghai. And crucially, for the first time, you have Japanese aerial bombing of a civilian population in, in Shanghai, prefiguring the entire Second World War. You know, it happened in China first. Um, large parts of Shanghai burn, thousands of civilians are killed. From our perspective, crucially, in the middle of that bombing, the commercial press building and the Oriental Library are hit by Japanese bombs. They sit right in the center of Shanghai. They're hit by Japanese bombs. Thousands of vital source texts, paintings, objects in the library and the museum are destroyed. Suddenly, people are realizing this is what aerial bombing does. It doesn't just hit military targets. It kills civilians. It eviscerates cities and society and culture. Right. This is the potential of aerial bombing. Um, the following year, 1933, the Japanese then are leaving Manchuria. They're moving down through Rohe province and they're coming right down to Shanghai Guan and the Great Wall. So Japanese troops now are only about three, four hours from Peking by road. Japanese aircraft are over all the, uh, overhead all the time. If you're sitting in the Palace Museum at this point, clearly you're worried, knowing the history of the Japanese in China, knowing the history of foreign armies in China and their propensity for looting and stealing and destruction, uh, you are going to start thinking about, you know, uh, is the Forbidden City safe? Uh, at some point in 1932, the board of directors of the Palace Museum decide the imperial collections are not safe. We are going to have to evacuate them to somewhere. We don't really know where, but we're going to start packing now. So they buy in thousands of wooden crates and they begin packing using cotton wadding, wadding uh, hemp cord, rice husks, heavy paper. They figure out a methodology for packing these incredibly fragile, irreplaceable objects, porcelain, jade, you know, you name it, uh, thousand year old hand scrolls on silk. Uh, and they end up in the Forbidden City and in other museums in Peking, they end up packing 19,500 cases, inside which reside, I think you can say as a kind of shorthand, about quarter of a million objects and texts. It's hard to know how to count those numbers. It depends how you compute them. But um, something like quarter of a million objects, perhaps between a third and a quarter of the contents of the entire Forbidden City at the time. And those objects were the objects that those curators at the time deemed to be what they thought were the most irreplaceable, the most valuable uh, objects of the lot. Uh, you know, 28,000 pieces of porcelain, uh, 8,000 paintings, uh, 8,000 works in jade, an entire copy of the Suku Chuan Shu, the Qianlong Encyclopedia, in 76,000 volumes. Uh, the entire Qing archive taken from the Forbidden City, um, you know, basically the history of the, of the Qing uh, 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 Empire. Um, 
And so you can imagine just a colossal number of objects, but also a colossal variety of objects, all of which have to be packed and then later conserved in different ways. So it was a monumental undertaking. And they finally actually started taking those cases out of the Forbidden City in February uh, 1933. Great. Yeah. Well, you give us a sense of that scale, but also one uh, really kind of... um, you know, intriguing part of the book is that there are certain objects that sort of resurface uh, periodically. Um, a, a you know, a scroll painting, early snow on the river. Uh, these objects, which seem to defy all of those categories you've just mentioned, which are these huge stone drums of the Qin era with these engravings on them that kind of periodically loom up as these impossibly heavy, unwieldy things, um, as well as uh, much more delicate items like this red glazed uh, Ming era ewer. Uh, kind of jug type thing. Um, I suppose I had to look that one up. Uh, but uh, there's, you know, this kind of amazing attention is, to there detail. Is <laughs> there is a picture. There is a picture which I got to in, in the very nice uh, yeah, inlay eventually. But uh, <laughs> yes, um, so we get those kind of close uh, studies of these things as well as they as they make their way along, um, and also lots of fascinating kind of uh, historical uh, references too. It seems that the packing technique was at least partly borrowed from how uh, Jingdezhen porcelain uh, kind of packers had done things over a very long period, right, from this kind of historic uh, uh, Chinese um, porcelain-producing town. Um, And, yeah, and a scale that is just just extraordinary. So this decision, as you mentioned, has been made and the first sort of outward shipments get get, get made. So um, how did that go? (laughs) Not well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next question. Uh, Uh, No, what was the sort of first trajectory out of out of Beijing and and you know uh yeah I guess what in terms of taste of things to come what kind of things did they encounter so in a slightly bizarre decision they decide to send their first shipment of cases to Shanghai which is odd considering the place has just been bombed the previous year but the decision is taken by the palace museum that the at least initially uh these 20,000 cases stuffed full of art will probably be safest in the foreign concessions in Shanghai. So they are taken by train in a very haphazard, badly organized, uh, ineffectual effort. They're taken by train uh, down to Shanghai over the course of a couple of months in 1933. And they're all stacked up in a disused hospital in the French concession on the Rue Montauban. Uh, And there they sit uh, for quite a while, while everyone tries to figure out what to do with them now. And overall, the situation in China deteriorates gradually. It's fascinating to note that during this period, when they're sitting in Shanghai, the museum is still trying to function as a museum. So they're actually taking objects, repacking them and sending them off to London for the London exhibition of 1935-1936 during this time. Uh, They're still trying to live out their role as curators and trying to make the museum be a museum, even as uh, 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 the artifacts in their charge are all wrapped up and and bundled and stacked in a disused hospital in Shanghai. And while they're doing this, they decide that they've got to build a proper storage facility. So they build, they get to work on building a storage facility in Nanjing, in the Chaotian Palace Complex, uh, which today houses the Nanjing Museum. Um, uh, 
Nanjing Municipal Museum. And, um, and by 1936, that's ready to go. And it's got a proper air-conditioned vault. It's bomb-proof. It's waterproof. It's got proper storehouses. It's, you know, it's a fully modern facility. Uh, and they move the cases to Nanjing in 19, by the end of 1936. Everything has moved to Nanjing. Uh, and they think it's going to be safe there. But of course, it's not because 1937, all-out war breaks out. Mm, right. And Japan moves into sort of the rest of to northern China and then increasingly moving further south to, to Shanghai and then uh, on to Nanjing. Now, it seems, yes, there were kind of attempts to, uh, I guess, or at least one potential solution was this international safety zone, which was proposed within Nanjing with some sense of what was going to happen uh, when the Japanese attacks and the possibility of trying to locate the the, the treasures there. Uh, But I guess that idea also ends up being um, kind of uh, suspended and these almost 20,000 cases. um, Actually, I mean, as an aside, cases is the sort of unit of... uh, you know, uh, measurements that is used throughout the book. But what are we what are we actually talking about when we say a case in terms of size? There is a, there is a picture of some stacked cases too. But in terms of uh, scale, what what is what is one case? Just so we have a better. Uh, it's about a that. cubic meter. Yeah, I mean, it's a wooden case about a cubic meter, something like that, a little smaller maybe. Um, uh, it's got slats along the sides, and crucially on it, it's got a labeling system which the curators use to keep track of what's inside every case and where every case is. And so that record keeping, the labeling system on the outside of the cases, is absolutely central to the whole story. The packing and the labeling uh, were were the two procedures around which this entire process worked and if either of them failed you know they they the, these objects were going to meet with disaster but they didn't they held the packing held and the labeling system held throughout the story um yeah and some of these cases are very very heavy some of them contain these huge chunks of granite you know they contain jade and that. and where, whenever you move them and we talk glibly about moving them here moving them there every time you move them you've got to hire hundreds and hundreds of porters just to pick them up just to get them from out of the hospital onto a truck you know and then off the truck onto a ship or onto a railway car it's the most enormous logistical operation and it's very expensive too well that's yeah i think that the, the kind of the, the fact of moving one case and what that involves is is in itself already uh, a formidable challenge which makes nearly 20,000 cases almost unintelligible and all the more unintelligible when we consider what's about to happen i suppose which is this sort of tripartite uh, journey to the west or, or uh, sort of um, relatively uh, well, domestic journey to the west uh, within China that the uh, objects all undertake at this point. So we've got these kind of three routes that you outlined, southern, central and northern, each of which uh, is covered in a, a detailed chapter or, or, or two indeed uh, throughout the sort of uh, um, kind of middle to latter part of the book. Um, so how was it decided which of these directions would be taken by which objects or, or maybe it wasn't i mean maybe it was slightly random um, but could you sort of perhaps first actually describe what those routes were uh, and and where things ended up uh, and then you know what what went where maybe if that's a, a relevant observation too um, yeah, so by you know, November 1937, these uh, 20,000 cases are still in Nanjing, and the Japanese are literally miles away from the walls of Nanjing. And there is a last-minute, frantic, panicked effort to get the cases out of Nanjing to anywhere, to safety anywhere. 
so they are driven across Nanjing. They get to the docks. The, the museum hires Yangtze River steamships from China Merchants Group, the big conglomerate, and also from Butterfield and Swire, the British trading company. The cases are loaded aboard uh, uh, steamships and they are taken upriver. The first two batches go up the Yangtze River. One then turns south on what's called the southern route, heads down into Guizhou province by steamship, by train, and by truck, and ends up uh, at a little tiny uh, township called uh, uh, Anshun, uh, just outside uh, uh, Guiyang. And there, the museum has found a cave which is reasonably dry and is reasonably large and will provide suitable long-term storage and will be bomb-proof. So the first batch of cases, which is very small, it's only about 80 cases, uh, containing some of the rarest, most irreplaceable pieces, uh, end up going to Guizhou province. The second batch leaves Nanjing just a couple of weeks before the Japanese arrive. It goes the whole way up the Yangtze River uh, to Chongqing over the course of a year and a half, staging as it goes in rickety, dangerous, damp, temporary storage facilities. It goes to Chongqing, then it goes through the three gorges on upper Yangtze River steamers, those little tiny ships that they used on the upper reaches of the Yangtze. Then it turns up the Min River and the Dadu River, where it's on bamboo rafts, being pulled upstream and hauled upstream by teams of trackers who pull it using ropes from the bank. And it makes its way to a little tiny township called uh, called Angu, um, past the city of Lershan, out to Angu, where it's stored in temples and in ancestral halls. Uh, again, that whole process is nearly two years getting from Nanjing to, to its final destination there. So it's in Sichuan province, way out in the Sichuan Basin, a long way from the front line, but still within range of Japanese bombing. Uh, and there it stays for seven years. That's nine and a half thousand cases, the largest shipment. The third shipment goes by what's called the Northern Route, and it goes by rail uh, back to Suzhou and then uh, west into Shanxi province, deep up into the lowest plateau, the whole way along that long, long, long railway line out to uh, out to the town of Baoji. The rail line then stops. There's no more railway. So where are they going to go? They put these seven and a half thousand cases on trucks and they take them over the Chinling Mountains in winter, which rise to 12,000 feet. So they're driving these cases through the snow and fog and whiteout on these icy switchbacks over the Chinling, down, down, down into Sichuan province. Uh, and they end up in the town of Erme, at the foot of, of Shan, the Buddhist mountain. And there they stay, also stored in ancestral halls and temples for, uh, for seven years throughout the war. So that's the broad disposition of it. And this movement, of course, mirrors the massive migration of people and government from eastern China to western China, which characterized the entire Chinese experience of World War II.
Mm, right. Yes. And that kind of, again, grand scale kind of historical forces uh, is, is something that is so so palpable and so tangible uh, in these movements every at every stage, you know, whether it's uh, yeah people kind of fighting up through rapids at ever sort of shrinking riff, rivers and rivulets and tributaries or or coming over the mountains in winter, as you mentioned, um, almost at every stage. And I don't think this is just your, you know, sort of talent as a, as a storyteller injecting this, but the, the kind of sense in which things seem to escape just in time just before uh whether it's a university in changsha or uh another uh, some some region of urban chongqing or some area that gets bombed almost as soon as the things have, have left uh it's it's really incredible that that this uh kind of happens at all but it happens i guess thanks to these uh, amazing curatorial figures who uh you know continue to be such a uh, strong presence throughout the uh, throughout the narrative um so you've got uh, Ma Hong kind of overseeing it, as you mentioned earlier, and then um, Zhuang Yan, Na Jiliang, and also this figure, um, Ouyang Daoda, uh, these kind of key, I guess, protagonists in some ways of, uh, or human protagonists, maybe, uh, to complement the object protagonists that uh, that dominate the narrative. Um, how, how did you sort of... Uh, I guess, find getting to know them and how did they generally sort of respond to their responsibilities? Were you uh, uh, kind of presumably pretty impressed by their ability to adapt to all of this stuff? Uh, but, you know, did their, did their sort of uh, human experience, um, how do you think it was sort of shaped by uh, this this kind of trajectory? That's a, that's a fairly open-ended question. but uh, Yeah, I mean, these guys, the, the two curators that I focus, besides Ma Hung, my central figure, I, yeah, I, I sort of focus on three curators, um, two of whom wrote very accessible, very beautiful memoirs. So obviously that was going to place them front and center uh, in my in my version of the story. Um, uh, the third curator, Ouyang Daoda, wrote the definitive account of the logistics of the entire trip. So you have two very personalized memoirs and you have one very granular, detailed kind of uh, um, accounting of everything that took place with lots of numbers and tables and stuff in it. Uh, and they form the sort of texture and the lived experience of in, in the book. And I, I wanted very much to try and center their voices as much as possible. I want you to try and hear them and their, uh, and these sort of wonderful reminiscences of everything down to what they were eating, where they were sleeping, their endless battles with bed bugs, you know, <laughs> their, the awful conditions on the road. Um, uh, Nadja Liang particularly writes, um, he's a very sort of rather hard-headed guy, uh, a, a very strong sense of humor, very resilient man, very strong uh, emotionally and psychologically. Um, and uh, he writes beautifully about the details of life um in quite a personalized way in a rather sort of modest way it's not a self-aggrandizing tone Zhuang Yen is a very thoughtful studious individual he tells us a lot about what how what he sees as the sort of meaning of what he's doing so we get an insight into their sort of their state of mind to some extent uh through Zhuang Yen as well and lovely reminiscences of life in rural China in Sichuan in World War II and I also got to interview his son who remembered the whole experience. He's, he was 87 years old and I interviewed him, but he remembered his childhood memories very clearly. So we got a rather beautiful, I think, picture of life as a child in uh, rural Sichuan while this was going on. Um, and uh, yeah, I have tried to make these people tell you the story 
uh, I've tried to lean into their experiences as much as possible. And I, I hope that works because they're both fascinating men with fascinating stories. Yeah. It was very, um, it was disappointing to me that we heard so little from the women involved. Uh, families went with the curators. There were lots of other voices out there that I would love to have tapped, but the material just wasn't there. Um, the women were not writing memoirs. They were not writing letters uh, as far as I could find. And so we miss that side of it. And when we hear about the women, the women are always being narrated by men, which which I found frustrating. But, but you know, it is what it is. Right. Sometimes being left behind, sometimes being sort of summoned to follow along. I mean, that the kind of family management that is also sort of part of the... <laughs> as these, as, it was as... an intrinsic part of the entire endeavor, but we right. don't really get a voice telling us sufficiently what, what that was like. We get some, mm. but we don't get enough in my view. Yeah. Mm. No, well, uh, it, in any case, as you say, that the kind of vivid sort of stories of, of these these figures uh, really does come through and, and make it uh, all the more amazing. You know that, that this was something that uh, actual people did, um, and you sort of describe as well in, in very sort of deft detail the way that individual figures, whether it's uh, whether it's Ma or Na or um, Zhuang, uh, shuttle between the kind of various sites, these West China. Uh, locations that uh, these um, well, as you uh, meticulously note, sixteen thousand seven hundred and twenty-seven uh, cases end up uh, in uh, sort of um, back in uh, back in China, uh, back in Western China itself. Um, we also note that there are three thousand further cases that uh, don't actually make it out of Nanjing all the way back at the beginning uh, of the of the trajectory. Um, but uh, of those kind of uh, all those cases, they then do manage to find uh, a, a sort of sanctuary, uh, as you put it, in West China for that uh, that crucial period. But you know, at some point, eventually, uh, the um, kind of devastation and uh, cataclysms that have given rise to this westward migration do start to die down, subside, and around 1945, um, the uh, war with Japan, of course, ends with the, the end of the Second World War. So what, uh, at that point, uh, are the sorts of uh, stakes of this? What, do, what sort of decisions then face people after they've hauled all this stuff uh, to the West? And, and um, yeah, what's the sort of path forward from there? Well, then they've got to haul it all the way back, right? So they've, so they've got 20,000 cases of art sitting in Sichuan, which somehow has got to get back first to the capital, Nanjing, and then, uh, as they would hope, the curators in Ma Hung would hope, it was going to go back to back to the Palace Museum Beijing, back to the Forbidden City, and it was going to be um, placed back in its original context and its original dispositions in the place where it belongs, you know, they, they, these collections belong. That doesn't happen. Uh, the cases get hauled all the way back up the Yangtze River uh, to Nanjing over the course of about a year and a half. They go by, by naval landing craft, uh, the whole way back up the Yangtze River, getting very wet as they go. Uh, and they end up back in Nanjing. By 19, uh, late 47 into 1948, it's becoming clear that the Republic is not going to survive, that the Communist Party is making huge inroads, particularly in Manchuria. And uh, the entire government of the Republic of Chiang Kai-shek's regime is, is under threat. And plans are being made for the government to retreat again, just like it did in World War II, to leave its capital and to go elsewhere. And a meeting is held in 1948 in Nanjing, the Palace Museum, um, meets to try and decide what to do about uh, the imperial collections. The 
uh, Executive Yuan, Jiang Kai-shek's office, ends up handing down orders that the finest objects, the rarest objects, will go with the retreating government of the Republic of China to Taiwan. And our curators, who we've been following all this time, who've seen these cases through the worst depredations of war, are now ordered to split the collections. They're ordered to separate out the finest, rarest pieces and take them to Taiwan. So uh, they follow orders and they do so. And the two curators, Zhuang Yan and Na Liang, end up escorting uh, nearly 3,000 cases of the very finest objects from Nanjing to Taiwan in late 48, early 49. And of course, the objects in those cases form the core of the National Palace Museum Taipei today. But we're left with this notion now. now Ma Hung and Ouyang Daoda, the other curators, decide to stay on the mainland and wait for the communists to come. They decide to go back to Peking and back to the Forbidden City. So our characters and the collections are now irrevocably split, and none of them will ever be uh, united again. And that's kind of how this story ends, or at least in my telling of it, that's that's how it ends, with, uh, with the collections split between Taipei, Peking, and Nanjing. And these four men who've been together through thick and thin, never able to unite again and never able to to sit around a table and talk again. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's really a personal, uh, a very personal story of a, of a broader uh, kind of um, uh, global event again. But um, also just, just back to the, to the objects for a second then. As you mentioned, they've been pulled all the way to the West. They've come all the way back. I mean, is it, is it really the case that uh, at this point where they eventually do get split in, uh, in, in the kind of uh, late 40s period when uh, the Civil War has resumed and the Communist uh, Party are looking like they'll take over, um, is it really the case that they're almost all intact? I mean, that's even that fact itself seems seems extraordinary. But you mentioned things getting wet. There are various episodes at which stuff falls off trucks, or um, you know, things fall in rivers. <laughs> Is it? What's your, what was your sense of whether there was any damage? You know, or kind of to what extent there were losses along all this way? So, in the sort of um mythologized telling of the story, particularly in the People's Republic of China today, you'll often hear the line, and not a single piece was lost or damaged or broken. That's part of the the myth that that surrounds this story. And it's not true. The, uh, The very granular telling, accounting of the entire story by the curator Ouyang Daoda goes into significant detail to tell us exactly what got broken and when and how, and a lot got broken. As a uh, overall percentage of what was shipped, it was a very small percentage, but it still ran into the hundreds of objects. Uh, so, for example, at one point, they're moving a load of cases in Chongqing into temporary storage in an old abandoned opium warehouse, and nobody's taken a good look at the floor, and the floor is actually rotten. So they stack all these cases up, the floor gives way, and these cases go crashing down into the basement, and a lot of cases are damaged, and a lot of stuff gets broken right there. And Ouyang Daoda lists every single object that gets broken. Uh, Ming porcelain gets busted, some some Joe period bronzes, their handles and their legs will get broken off, they get dented and things. On another occasion, a truck is crossing a level crossing, and 
a loc it doesn't you know the driver doesn't look both ways before he does so and a locomotive comes speeding down and crashes into this truck loaded up with cases and a load of stuff gets broken then trucks are always overturning on the road but by and large the packing was so good that it held and a lot of stuff got dropped smashed uh uh cases got smashed but the packing held and the stuff inside didn't get broken so it was a remarkably effective job in keeping in maintaining the integrity of the collections for texts and books and paintings the real worry was damp and mold and bugs and uh, a lot of cases got wet and there was an awful lot of emergency conservation where they would rip open wet cases and and just take stuff out and hang it up to dry often it's kind of at the roadside or at the riverside they would they were doing this to try and dry stuff out as they went there was a lot of that um so no it was it was it was touch and go a lot of the time and there was a lot of improvisation you know, snap judgments, guesswork. It wasn't a smooth, heroic process. And and throughout the book, I have tried to avoid using a sort of heroic mode of narrative. And I've tried to lean into the kind of random, capricious, improvisational, uh, always just being on the edge of disaster nature of the entire enterprise, because that's really how it reads to me, and you can feel it in the memoirs all the time. Mm. Well, that's there right up to the end, even even after this decision to move the most precious, irreplaceable, as you mentioned, objects to Taiwan. Um, I mean, the basis of that decision, I think, is, is also an interesting one. A kind of this the curator, curatorial decision to choose certain things as, as being somehow more valuable out of this, you know, um, unbelievable number of, of things. Um, something interesting to to reflect on, but. As you mentioned, you get then this sort of bifurcation and two curators remaining in in, in, in China or mainland on the mainland, and uh, two going to Taiwan. So, how does the sort of splitting of the uh, collection at that point get mirrored in the split experiences of the uh, of the of the people involved? I mean, this this sort of brings us right up to the the conclusion of the book, and uh, especially Ma Hung's fate. Yeah, so the curators who went to Taiwan spent the rest of their lives in Taiwan and were, you know, established the 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 Taipei Palace Museum and lived by and large long, prosperous, happy, fulfilled lives. Um Ma Hung's story was rather different. Uh he was, you know, by by the time the communists took over in 1949 uh on mainland China, he was already um uh, in his late 60s. Uh and he decided to stay, I think, partly out of loyalty to the Forbidden City, but also just because he didn't, he couldn't face the idea of moving to Taiwan and starting a whole new life away from everything he knew. In the early days of the People's Republic, and particularly in Peking, um, it's been slightly sort of memory hold. I think that the 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 degree to which Chinese intellectual classes had a very rough time at the start of the People's Republic. We all know what happened to them later on, the anti-rightist campaigns, and the Cultural Revolution, and the stinking ninth category of intellectuals. And all. But actually, there was a lot going on in the early 50s, and particularly in Peking. And Ma Hung fell foul quite quickly of um, the early campaigns in those days, particularly the San Fan campaign, the Three Antis campaign. And the last few years of his life were lived in fear and in humiliation 
He starts keeping a diary in late 1948. And you can see, so for the first time, we're hearing his, his own voice very, very late in life as he enters into this incredibly traumatic period. And I try in the book to draw out some sense of what happened to him and some sense of how it felt to be in Peking at that time. Um, he writes a lot in the diary about the number of suicides that are taking place. He writes a lot about disappearances. Um, you can sense this, the, the, the political terror growing. And then he ends up being taken away for interrogation in the context of the Sanfan campaign. And it's really, I found it very difficult. I found it very painful. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very sad end to an absolutely remarkable story of a, of, a, of a remarkable, very modest, retiring man who was deeply devoted to conserving and preserving the imperial collections. Yeah. Mm. And the, I guess uh, uh, the sort of opening of a, of a new chapter, which is not part of the, the book, as you mentioned, this is more or less the, the coda of it. But uh, of course, then uh, reflecting on, as you mentioned, those other kind of more um, uh, well-known and uh, sort of uh, severe political campaigns and uh, so on that focused in many cases on old stuff, uh, all the more amazing that uh, things have made them made their way up to the present day, even even without moving along quite the trajectories that you have charted for us uh, today and in the book. Um, but brilliant, Adam, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us about uh, this uh, great um, uh, piece of work today. Um, we've taken up quite a lot of your time, but uh, before we let you go, uh, are you working on anything kind of new, uh, a sequel, you know, something to uh, show us <laughs> what two. happened to the collections uh, in their respective places, or you probably, you've probably had enough of following them around. So what are you... Uh, uh, got, what have you got on at the moment? Uh, well, as you know, as a commercial writer, you have to kind of move from one project to the next. So I'm currently looking around for my next project. I'm very taken with um, with the uh, the sort of project that has been underway among historians in the last. I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years to try and recover this period of Chinese history and to try and rethink and rework China's experiences in World War II. There's been some amazing work done by historians like Rana Mitter and Hans van der Ven and Diana Larry and Peter Harmson and Robert Bickers and all these terrific historians who've made us rethink what happened in China in World War II. And I think we are still to gain a a, a strong public and popular understanding of China's place in World War II. I, I think we are very ignorant and impoverished in our understanding of what happened to China and East Asia in general in the Second World War. Um, so I'm attracted by the idea of, of trying to work more on that and, and I'm looking around for ways into that. And, and another another story which one could tell uh, that, that would allow us to, to use the granular story against the larger historical backdrop. Um, haven't found one yet, but I'm looking. <laughs> okay, well, uh, tips uh, tips on a postcard then. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll put <laughs> the call open. out. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, uh, Adam Brooks, thank you so much for uh, appearing on the podcast today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Listeners, thank you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>